Hey, summer is on its way, and that brings Vacation Bible School here at Wallula Christian Church, and uh, I'm excited about Vacation Bible School. Every year, uh, some of you stop me uh, during the, you know, the course of that week or leading up to Vacation Bible School, and you'll say something along the lines of, you know, you know the first time I really learned about Jesus was at VBS when I was a kid. And, and so not only is it just a great week for your kids to have a lot of fun and to hang out, it's, it's like a free day camp, right? It's a good deal for everyone everybody in the family. So bring your kids out. It's a good thing, but it, it really truly makes an internal difference in, in the lives of kids and families, and, and that's why we uh, throw so many resources towards Vacation Bible School. And, and so just pay attention to all the information about VBS that's in your bulletin. And uh, I know Katie pr still needs volunteers to, to hang out that week and, and to uh, lead in different areas. And so get in touch with Katie and, and uh, participate in that way as well. Looking forward to VBS. Kids are, are really a lot of fun. I was at the ballpark this week and I'm, I'm standing in, uh, behind one of the fields, kind of in between. There's a, a fourplex of softball fields and I'm standing sort of in the middle of this fourplex of softball fields and this dad, this young father and his young son, probably three or four years old, walking through the, the complex on their way to another softball field and the little boy has to walk across one of the, the storm grates, this uh, kind of in the middle of this area, and he, he approaches it, and he's looking around it. It reminded me of when I was a little kid, you know, when I was four or five or 17, and walking with my mom through downtown Topeka, and there were these sewer grates on the, on the sidewalks. I was scared to death of them. I would not walk across them. I'd stop and go around, but this little boy stopped at, the, at this at the storm drain, and he's looking at this great cover, and he's just, he's fascinated by it. And he said, Daddy, what's in this hole? And you know, Dad's in a hurry. He wants to get to the softball game, and he says, come on. But this little boy was just stuck. He was, he was fascinated by uh, what was in that drain, what, what could be under that cover, and seeing through the little holes in it. He was, he was investigating what was there. Kids are just naturally uh, sort of inquisitive. They want to know answers to the questions they have. And sometimes their questions are sort of difficult. I mean, you're, you're driving along. We've been there. If, you, if you're a parent, you've been there before. Your kid's in the back seat, and he or she lets out with a question that, you know, you have four minutes before you're at your appointment or at home or wherever, and you're not sure you can answer that question in the four minutes. Sometimes you're not sure you have the answer to the question. Not only can you not explain it well, but you might not know. And it's hard sometimes to be able to say, hey, I'm not sure. We're going to have to figure that out together. Kids ask all kinds of questions. I found 15 difficult questions that kids ask. Uh, they, they might be questions like this. How is money made? Do birds have ears? What is zero? Why do I have to pay for things? Why do I get a shadow? Why do fingers get bumpy when I'm in the bath for a long time? Are squirrels married? What do potatoes eat? Who dug the sea? What is a penguin? Why is water wet? What does love mean? Why can't I see my eyes? Do cats have eyebrows? And why do I have bones? Those are all questions that probably have answers, right? But sometimes in the, in the course of that conversation, we're unsure of how to answer that question. We're unsure of what our response ought to be. We're unsure if we have the right answer or not. And if that's true of questions like, do cats have eyebrows, then it's true of some of the really big questions 
in life. Last week we celebrated Easter together and we, we investigated together that empty tomb. And, and uh, I've come to the conclusion that I believe the very best explanation for that empty tomb on Easter is that Jesus raised from the dead, the resurrection, the reason we celebrate Easter, the, the hope that it provides for us for all of eternity. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've all looked at that story. We've all looked at the facts. We've all considered what it's teaching and we can't get to the end where this dead guy comes back to life and we go I've never seen that before you know we think man that that's a hard thing to come to grips with that's a that's a tough answer to kind of wrap our minds around and each one of us has to be willing to sort of decide, am I, going to, am I going to figure this out? Am I going to wrestle with this really big question or whatever the big question in your life at this moment is in regards to faith or anything else? Am I going to wrestle with this question or am I going to let it pass? And we absolutely should wrestle with those questions in life. And I think that the story of Jesus his post-resurrection appearance to one of his closest friends, this disciple by the name of Thomas, in John chapter 20, I think it teaches us four principles that will help us to wrestle with life's really big questions. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open it to John, the 20th chapter. We're going to take a look at verses 24 through 31 this morning. Maybe you're using that YouVersion app on one of your devices. You should be able to find uh, the scripture reference and the outline. If you search under events for Wallula, you should be able to find that quickly. Uh, John is just the fourth book in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in chapter 20, just towards the end of chapter 20, where we started last week. Verses 24 through 31, four principles that will help us to wrestle with, with life's really big questions. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 24, this is what God's Word says. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless... I see the nail marks in his hands and put a, my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The story, I think, records for us, it teaches us four principles that can help us to wrestle with life's big questions. The principle number one is that doubt is, is not a deal breaker. Doubt is no 
deal breaker. When you, when you think about your relationship with Jesus and you think about you know, beginning a relationship or continuing that relationship, uh, being a follower of Christ, kind of having these questions about you know, the different miracles recorded in the New Testament, the different, uh, different events that happen, they, these questions, this doubt is no deal breaker. Look at, look at how our story begins. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. We, we don't know that much, to be honest, about this disciple uh, known as Thomas. We, we learn very little from Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Thomas. In fact, the only mention that each one of those gospel writers makes of the disciple Thomas is in the list of the 12 disciples. You know, you get the list of the 12 disciples, and sure enough, Thomas is there. And so we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Thomas is one of Jesus' 12 closest friends, these guys who followed Jesus around for the three years or so of his ministry on this earth, who listened to him teach, who saw all of those miraculous things happen. But we don't learn much else in those gospel gospels of Thomas. Everything, most of, most of what we know about Thomas, we learn from the gospel of John. And John fills us in a little bit on Thomas's personality. You know, one of the first things we learn about Thomas is that he's, he's a guy who's not afraid to question things. He's a guy who's inquisitive in nature. A story uh, is told about Jesus teaching. Jesus is teaching to these 12 disciples, and he's talking in, in John chapter 14, the first five verses or so, about uh, the fact that he's going away. And they're beautiful verses that, that talk, uh, where Jesus promises, I'm going, I'm going away, I'm going to my Father's house, and in my Father's house are many rooms. He's saying there's enough room for all of you. There's enough room for everyone who believes in me. And, and I'm going away now so that I can prepare a place for you. And when I go away, you'll know how to, you'll know how to get there. Verse 5 is this, is this question from Thomas. And I just imagine, I don't know exactly whether Thomas was the kid who sat on the front row of class and his hand shot up every time. You know, I've got a question. I've got a question. Or whether Thomas was a little bit more, I'm not sure I would have questioned Jesus at all, maybe like the other 11. But if I did, I would have been how I imagined Thomas, who's sort of looking around. What's everybody else think about this? You know, are, are they getting it? Because I'm not. And then Thomas asks, you know, where are you going? If we don't know where you're going, how can we possibly know how to get there? He just didn't understand. And the tremendous thing about Thomas is, is that he was inquisitive enough that that, that, that curiosity was so strong that the fear of being wrong didn't overwhelm that curiosity. You know, when the question is big enough, when the answer is important enough, then we can't allow our fear of being wrong to overpower the curiosity that's begging the question in our life. And for sure, when we think about something like Easter, when we think about something like the explanation for an empty tomb and how we respond to that, man, that question is big enough and the answer is important enough that we have to follow Thomas' example and we have to be willing to ask the questions and not be afraid of, of what, how other people might respond or what other people might think, but to be a, a, a person who questions and who asks. 
Thomas was that person, and, and I think that following suit in that line of thought, Thomas was a guy who was devoted and was courageous. Another story uh, unfolds in the Gospel of John when uh, Jesus has been doing some things and, and miracles, performing miracles and teaching and preaching, and the word is spreading about him, and the religious elite are beginning to become really concerned about Jesus. In fact, that concern has grown to hatred, and they're looking for a way to kill him, to eliminate him. And so Jesus takes his disciples, and he leaves sort of the area of Jerusalem, the city, and he goes to the country. And while he's in the country, he's teaching and preaching and performing miracles, and they're enjoying this tremendous time of ministry uh, sort of in the safety of the country, away from the city, which has become too dangerous for them. Jesus, though, receives word that one of his dear friends, Lazarus, was sick, and he told the disciples, Lazarus is sick. They say, well, he'll, he'll get better, though, right? And uh, some time goes by, and Jesus said, Lazarus died. We're going back to Bethany, which was near, very near Jerusalem. The disciples said, Jesus, you know, if, if Lazarus is dead, that's, that's terrible, and that's sad. But, man, let's think about, you know, our own safety for once. We can't go. It's too dangerous. And this is the conversation that's taking place between Jesus and his disciples. It's Thomas who stands up and says, hey guys, we got to go. Let's go. Let's go die with Jesus. I mean, it's that sort of devotion and courage that we learn is inside of Thomas. Maybe that's why we get verse 25. You know, maybe it's that devotion that fuels him to sort of be off by himself at this time and place. So the other disciples, uh, the end of verse 24 tells us that Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's this verse that sort of gives us Thomas and gives Thomas his famous nickname. Thomas is, is known kind of throughout church history as Doubting Thomas. It's one of those names that just kind of sticks. Some of you have heard a story before uh, from this stage or whatever about a nickname I had when I was a kid that just stuck. And I'm not sure how it, it happened when I was too young to remember getting this nickname, but all through my childhood, you know, when I, was, when I was five, it wasn't so bad. When I was eight, it wasn't so bad. When I was 12, it was starting to get a little rough. When I was 16 and my mom was still calling me in front of my friends, poo, that's hard for a 16-year-old boy to take. You know, now as a 42-year-old, you know, I'll call my mom sometimes and I'll say, hey, mom, and she'll say, hi, Pooh. It's just, you know, I've just given up, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not worth saying, mom, you know, I'm 42 years old, maybe Pooh, we ought to leave that behind. Just, okay, I'll be Pooh, that's fine. Well, Thomas gets this nickname and it just sort of stuck. And I'm not sure, you're looking at me, you're thinking, well, there's a reason Pooh stuck. And, and maybe, maybe Thomas, though, doesn't deserve this nickname, you know, uh, when you consider what he's really saying, what has it taken for most of those other disciples that are in that upper room 
locked in because they're afraid of what might happen to them? What has it taken for them to believe? Outside of John that we studied last week who saw the empty tomb and believed, you know, every other disciple to this point has seen the risen Jesus and then they've believed. Well, that's what Thomas is asking for. Thomas is saying, I, if you guys saw him, I want to see him. And when I can look and see where the nails were, when I, can, when I can look and see where he was stabbed in the side, then I'll believe that he's raised from the dead. And so Thomas has, has been given this nickname of Doubting Thomas. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've sort of probably been in the same place. Maybe you were there this week. As you considered the explanation for the empty tomb and you thought, well, okay, those things make sense, but man, you still, there's got to be another explanation. And you've tried to work your way through that. We we ought to remember a few things about doubt, okay? And and even doubting and questioning these, these big questions in life. The first thing is, is that it's natural. You know, we shouldn't be shocked by that. I mean, we're talking about one of Jesus' 12 closest friends, This is a guy who's walked around with Jesus for three years, has heard everything he said. He's seen everything Jesus has done. He was there and said, let's go back to Bethany. And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. He saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. And this is a guy who said, I I need to see the holes in his hands. I need to see the spear mark in his side. Doubt is a, is a natural thing that we deal with. There's a couple of different ways or, or different kinds of doubt, I suppose. One is sort of those intellectual questions that we ask. They, we get stuck with, you know, I've never seen anybody resurrected. How does that happen? And we've got to study and, and determine, you know, is this, is this really, could this be an historical event? Is that really the best explanation for the empty tomb? We sort of unpacked that last week. If you, if you missed that message, you can listen to it online and, and, and see some of the reasons that, that I believe and that the New Testament teaches that the best explanation for the empty tomb is the resurrection. You know, we can, we can have those kinds of questions about the book that we study, the answers we receive from Scripture. Well, can we really trust that, that what we're reading today is what was written down thousands and thousands of years ago? And I'm no expert in this, but if you do the research, you'll find out that the New Testament has more evidence that we can trust that what we're reading today was actually written thousands and thousands of years ago, more evidence than any other book from antiquity, any other ancient document that we study in our schools, that we accept as history, that we, we accept as being written by the author that's claimed, all of those things, way more evidence than any of those other works for the New Testament. We can trust that the New Testament is that document. We can trust uh, that, that uh, it's what was written down so many years ago. We can tackle and do the research and figure out some of the answers to those intellectual doubts. Sometimes our doubt is more emotional. You know, we, we're facing a circumstance in life. Something happens and we, we say things like, well, why would God allow that to happen you know how does how does a good god allow evil or death or pain or whatever it is we're we're dealing with at that time how, how can we figure that out and, and the tremendous thing that thomas is experiencing some of that as well you know he is emotionally broken whether he feels like he let down his teacher 
he let down Jesus or that Jesus let him down, Thomas is emotionally broken. And one of the things we're going to learn is, is that Jesus never broke that relationship. He didn't sever that relationship. That doubt isn't a deal breaker. And that we can hold on to the important relationships even as we struggle through those questions. Even as we're dealing with this emotional doubt in our life, we can hold on to the, the relationships we've built and we can build relationships with other believers and seek support and love from them. We can hold on to a relationship with Jesus even as we question some of those things. Doubt isn't a deal breaker. It doesn't, it doesn't end that, that process. And, and lastly, as we're kind of considering the questions we have and the doubt that we have, we, uh, we need to uh, pay attention to the next two principles especially. Principle number two is that Jesus offers peace. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, verse 26, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Principle number two is that Jesus offers peace. This is an amazing scene, isn't it? They're, they're in this house and it's locked up because they're afraid of what might happen if they go out. They're afraid of being caught, captured, arrested, executed and so they're whole up in this house with with locked doors and jesus just shows up it says something about his post-resurrection his glorified form that he's he's there uh, present uh, in this room when it's locked up man getting into a locked room is is hard uh, last week easter sunday we had we had different things planned to, to make your experience here better you know one of the things we wanted to do is to open the south driveway so that some traffic could flow out to the south rather than all going through and in and out of one entrance the problem is is that gate down there is is typically locked it is locked and there's a padlock on it. So that week we, we got the key that's marked, you know, for that padlock. And we went down and, and I tried it and it wouldn't budge. And, you know, we did all the, we sprayed WD-40. It wouldn't work. And I thought maybe it's the wrong key. So I went back and got all the keys that looked like it, you know, and went down and tried. Nope, none of those keys worked. And so then I did what any good American does when he can't figure something out. I Googled it. You know, and I got all these, uh, all these responses at how to, how to break a lock. It's a little concerning to me that there are so many YouTube videos about how to break locks, but there are. And so I watched them and I tried them all. You two wrenches and you ply the things apart. And one, my favorite was, okay, well, and it worked in the YouTube video, right? I mean, I can't believe it. So the, the lock and you just put a little tension and you bang on the side with a hammer. And they just bang like this, boom, boom. And then it pops open. So I go down, I think this is going to be easy, a little tension, boom, boom, nothing. So if you're armed with a hammer, what do you do? Well, that wasn't enough, I'm going to hit it harder. You know, and then by that time, I'm a little frustrated, so you hit it harder. And then I'm pretty concerned that what, you know, the neighbors are like, what's with the freak hitting the post in the parking lot what's that weirdo doing but that didn't work and so i got bolt cutters i'm driving around for days with bolt cutters in my back seat why does the preacher got bolt cutters well he's trying to break into the parking lot but i couldn't do it you know i couldn't get it and and so that sunday morning you know i tried one last time i thought the easter miracle didn't work and i don't know so i couldn't do it and i came in and and john asked me our worship pastor john asked hey are we going to open that gate and i'm like shut up no. 
I said, hey, you know, you know the, it's locked. I can't get it, and I've tried everything. He said, well, you know we have bolt cutters. And I said, yeah, I tried. He said, you want me to get after it? I said, yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah, go. Because I know what he's thinking. This fat old guy, he can't do it. I'll go. I'll go handle it. You know, and, and so he went and a little later. He came back in. I said, hey, how'd it go? He said, yeah, you can't do that. I said, yeah, I know. It's hard to get into a locked room, but here Jesus is. And that's amazing. That is so cool. But what's even more cool is what Jesus says when he shows up there. But he's, because he looks at Thomas, he looks at a guy who, I mean, he's Jesus. He knows that Thomas has these questions. That Thomas said to the other disciples, I'll believe it when I see it. There's no way. And Jesus looks at him and he says, peace be with you. He extended the opportunity for relationship before all the questions were answered. You know, the last couple of weeks have been sort of scary with world events. You know, bombings and ships moving and all kinds of stuff going on, right? My daughter Lacey came to me a week or so ago and she said, Dad, are we going to have World War III? You know, it's one of those questions that, here, let me answer that in three minutes or less. Because it also happened to be Sunday morning between worship services, right? And, hey, everybody's a little nervous and scared and has anxiety about that. We talked about it a little bit, and I'm trying to explain to her, you know, what I think will happen, and who cares what I think, right? But what I think could happen is, like when I was a kid and there was this Cold War, you studied about that in history, which sort of gives you a stomach pain, too, to say, this is in my lifetime, but you studied about it in history class, well, the Cold War, and there's this standoff. And why is there a standoff? Because there's no relationship between these two superpowers. And because there's no relationship, there's sort of this trepid peace. There's not really peace. And there's these skirmishes, these kind of proxy wars that spring up because of that broken relationship, because there's no relationship. Man, that's an amazing thing about our Savior is that doubt is no deal breaker. And that we can, we can, he offers us peace even as we're dealing and processing with that doubt. We can be, begin and be in relationship with him. And when we are in relationship, we have access to real peace and real love. Principle number three is that Jesus invites investigations. It's not that he doesn't want those questions answered. Look at what he says in, in verse 27 to Thomas. He said, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus offers the answers to his questions. Thomas said, I won't believe until I see those nail marks, until I see that wound in the side. And Jesus said, here I am, take a look. He invites that investigation to happen. And it's so easy for us to see how Thomas could investigate the situation. Well, how are we to investigate those same sorts of big questions? How are we to investigate the questions we have about those events that happened thousands of years ago? I read several articles about detectives who, who study and, and work cold cases. You know, cold cases, these, these cases that have never been solved, and some are years and years and years old. 
And there's, there's these steps that this one detective in particular said that he goes through in order to solve cold cases. He begins by reading the entire book. You know, these files end up in sort of notebooks, the book of the case, with all the information in it and all the facts, everything they've studied. He said, I, I read all the way through that book. Well, you know, we have a book that contains all the information about all that stuff that happened thousands of years ago, and we have such easy access to be able to read through that book. He said, then I take, I take notes about what I'm reading, and I summarize everything that I've learned. You know, he st in other words, he studies it, and then he summarizes it. Why do we summarize stuff? Why do teachers, you know, when we were in school, why do teachers say, hey, summarize this idea? Why, why is that important? Because if we can summarize something, if we can explain something, you know, in like three minutes or less or whatever, then we really have some understanding of that. And so he said, hey, I, I take notes, I study it, and then I summarize it, because then I know I understand it. And then I gather evidence outside of that source. Uh, we can gather historical evidence from outside of Scripture. You know, we can examine the eyewitness accounts critically. We can take a look at the gospel accounts and we can, we can study, does this really make sense? Because, you, you know, the next step he takes is he recreates the crime scene, the, the timeline, and we can do that from historical documents and from Scripture. We can look for new evidence. We can reason toward and answer rationally. And the last step he takes is he writes up the case. He makes a decision. Which is where, where Thomas is. He has to make a decision. He's, he's got to follow through with principle number three, which is to, to go ahead and investigate the, the evidence. But then finally, principle number four is to be open to the truth. To kind of weigh that evidence and, and then make your best uh, decision on that evidence. In verse 28, Thomas makes his decision. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is an amazing declaration. It's the, it's the first declaration in the New Testament of, of somebody saying, hey, I believe that Jesus is God. My Lord and my God. You know, that's such an amazing decision. Last Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, it was, it was a great time of worship, and, and somebody here brought their grandson for uh, just the first time or maybe second time to church or whatever, and grandson decided to come, a young, young boy, and he sat in service, and he listened to the story, and he sang the songs, and he's writing on, uh, you know, one of the communication cards, like, people do, right? Especially kids. Hey, I need something to do. I'm going to write on this card. And grandpa picks up the card after service. The little boy had left it behind. And, and on it, you know, he's taken notes. He's written down information from that service and, and sort of circled on that card is this, this phrase that says, God died for me. You know, he made a decision, at least on that Sunday, now it matters what we do with that decision. We're going to talk about that for a minute. But what an amazing decision that you can make just like Thomas made. My Lord and my God. You know, what we do after that really matters. You know, and, and maybe this little boy, maybe, maybe he'll be the next Billy Graham, right? I don't know. Maybe he'll be a Christian leader of a Fortune 500 business. And make a huge difference in the world in that way. Maybe he will lead his family to know 
Jesus. What an eternal difference that would make in, in, in this boy's life and in his family's life. Thomas, uh, history says that uh, tradition says that Thomas went to India. He took the story of Jesus to India. And there are churches in India today that trace their ancestry, their history, all the way back to that first century, to that time period. What an amazing difference that Thomas made with his decision and what he would do after that. Then Jesus told him in verse 29, because you've seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Our decision, the same opportunity is provided for us today. We can make that same decision and Jesus can make that same difference in our lives today. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have life that is truly life. That's the impact that that decision can make. And don't quit before you, you come to terms, before you wrestle with those questions. That little boy at the ballpark looking at that sewer grate, and he's studying it, and dad's doing everything he can to get the little boy to come along. He's, he's bribing him, tries to distract him, bribes him. Hey, come on, come on, you can have these chips if we go over here, right? He tried to persuade the little boy based on important relationships. He said, uh, son, we're here to watch Susie hit, or whatever her name was. I don't think it was Susie, but we'll go with Susie today. Come on, we're here to watch Susie hit. She's up to bat. Let's go. Finally, dad uh, resorted to fear, and he tried to just scare the little boy into moving away. He said, son, move away from there. You're getting too close. You'll fall in, and the monster will get you. I'm serious. I thought, that's genius. But the little boy's having none of it. He's stuck. He's fascinated. And his question hasn't been answered. What's in this hole? What's down there? Why is it covered? You know, hey, I want to encourage you to wrestle with those big questions. Don't quit. Doubt is no deal breaker. Don't give up because those questions exist. Uh, begin that relationship. Even as you're questioning those things, if, if, you're, if that's you know, the anxiety, the worry, the man, give in. Begin a relationship with folks around you, maybe who invited you here last week or this week or, or in the past who are followers of Jesus. Now you can hear from them and learn from them. Begin that relationship with Jesus who offers us peace. Continue to investigate and to study. You know, really, when you, when you look at world religions, one of the things that stands out about Christianity is that we worship a God who invites investigation. Test the claims. Study. Learn. Don't give up. Don't give up until you've discovered, you've come to terms, you've wrestled with, hey, what was behind that rolled away stone what was in that hole what was in that tomb let's stand and worship him together